2: Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes
3: everything.
2: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from
3: HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Doughty. And I'm Dablina Chakraborty. And today's topic is a very popular listener suggestion because who doesn't love underground cities? I mean, they're so mysterious. It's kind of the the world that we want to hide from ourselves if, if we want to get really philosophical about it. Sewers, bones. All kind of, of scary. Things. Yeah, kind of scary. Kind of scary. I mean, certainly if you're going to go into like comic book territory, it's where the penguin lives,
4: the bad guy. Right. Um, you don't want to go down there by yourself.
3: But intriguing, too. And I think yes. that's why so many people have suggested this topic to us. And um, not too long ago, I actually edited an article on urban exploring by my freelancer, Julia Layton. And it was, you know, it covered the the whole range of urban exploring options, what like uh, exploring abandoned buildings, uh, factories, that sort of thing. Yep. But it was the underground spots that she mentioned, like these abandoned coal mines in France or the Denver International Airport, which has this crazy underground baggage handling labyrinth and all these New World Order conspiracy theories. It was that kind of thing that really Captivated my attention with that article.
4: Yeah, so that's kind of where this idea came from, and we wanted to do a mix of cities. But interestingly, some of the listener suggestions that we've gotten over the years have been. Kind of out of the ordinary,
3: just as out of the ordinary as the as the Denver International Airport, yeah. an unexpected
4: underground location, right? Uh, not the typical London, Rome, Paris lineup that you might expect if you hear about underground cities. Though we will be talking about some of those too. So fittingly, many of the suggestions seem to be inspired by personal experience. People who had seen these subterranean worlds on guided tours and wanted other people to know about them, and that seems like a good place for us to insert a little caveat here. While a lot of places we'll mention are open to the public and are safe to tour, unsurprisingly, most underground areas are not. They can be dangerous, deadly, and illegal. So just a disclaimer there. (laughs) Our little
3: disclaimer before we start. uh, We're actually even going to be mentioning a special police unit that tries to discourage exploration or trespassing, depending on which side of the law you're on there, um, in one particularly famous underground city. But the first selection on our list is a truly ancient underground city. And if you've ever seen Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, you're going to be visually familiar already with Petra. Uh, in the movie, it's the one of the buildings of Petra is the setting for the temple that holds the Holy Grail. And in the movie, the real life stone facade of that building, it's called the treasury in real life, leads to this elaborate underground world. So it's probably not going to be too hard for folks who've only seen the movie to imagine that there's an underground city connected to Petra. But um, that's not entirely the case. It's rather misleading. At, at least, least not when it comes to that treasury part. Yeah, when, the tr- when, you, when it comes to the treasury building, that really is mostly a facade with just a very small room carved out into the cliffs behind it that was once used as a tomb. But Petra as a whole definitely counts as an amazing underground city.
4: It does. The Nabataeans, formerly a nomadic tribe, built it as their capital in what is today Jordan. And the Though they were annexed into the Roman Empire in A.D. 106, Petra thrived as a trading capital for hundreds of years after that. So the mountains made the city defendable from attacks, and the soft rocks made it easy to carve and excavate underground areas, in addition to creating an amazing water system, pipes, reservoirs, etc uh, that allowed for fruit to be grown in this arid region, plus uh, gardens, baths, drinking water. It allowed for the inclusion of those things as well. So
3: all these pipes just um, carved right through rock. I think it might be... Um, Well, maybe not the most visually impressive part of Petra, uh, certainly an accomplishment. But it was an unknown city to Westerners from the 12th century Crusades until 1812, when a guy named Johann Ludwig Burkhardt came across it. It was, uh, I don't know, like a story you would... um, Read in a in a real Victorian sort of travel account, almost you know he was disguised as a Persian pilgrim, came across these ruins and well, obviously, like I just said, very visually impressive you know, imagine soaring buildings carved into rock and all these diverse architectural styles peppered with enticing caves and underground chambers for a long time archaeologists just saw what was on the surface you know they just saw it as this very strange very elaborate tomb town i mean the the treasury that that we mentioned earlier is a prime example of that this beautiful facade but just a tiny room underneath i mean certainly not Built for a thriving city.
4: Right, and it actually wasn't until the later 20th century that the full scale of Petra started to reveal itself. According to a Smithsonian article by Andrew Lawler, some 800 caves have been identified to this point. Some were tombs, others gathering spots, or just places to escape from the heat. And a thriving surface-level city also existed with a 600-seat theater, Roman-style villas, including one that's been excavated, which contains an olive press and Pompeii-style frescoes. And these things obviously didn't survive intact, leading to that original sort of eerie impression that Petra was underground only.
3: Exactly. And in reality, as many as 30,000 people probably lived in Petra at its height. But finally, you know, as a trading city. It really relied on lots of people coming through. And as new caravan routes developed and as the sea trade stole away some of the business, eventually the city fell into decline. Earthquakes didn't help matters either. Today, though, it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site. So an underground city that you can actually explore to a certain extent. Um, But there's a lot left to explore, I mean, a lot left for the professionals to explore. I'd say, according to a National Geographic article by Madi Milstein, only fifteen percent of the site has been excavated. So, plenty sure to learn there. Find all sorts of new things. But Petra, we started off because it really seems like an engineering marvel. I mean, not just because of those beautiful facades, but all those caves carved deep into the rock. Something that was clearly carefully planned, carefully executed over a long period of time. But the next entry on our list is the epitome of an afterthought.
4: Yeah, and it's a lot closer to home for us. It's actually Seattle, which was founded in the mid-1800s in not exactly the best location as far as tidal flooding went. The city experienced major flooding problems right from the start, but it wasn't really bad enough for them to deal with the problem right away. But in the summer of 1889, a major fire burned the town, which was mostly wood at that point, to the ground. And new building codes reasoned out the fire risk and ordered new construction to be done in brick or stone. But nobody really considered the flood issue still until many new buildings were already standing. Doesn't seem like the best time to to figure, oh, we actually have a a
3: problem with this.
4: Especially when you're working in brick.
3: No, yeah, or stone. So finally, though, city engineers decided that to handle the flooding, They were just going to have to raise the streets. I mean, easy peasy, right? Right. (laughs) Not so much, but they started this massive undertaking in the 1890s, and they did it by building these retaining walls that were just a few feet beyond the existing buildings, and then they would backfill between the walls and then pave the new raised surface as a road. This is the really crazy part. I mean, as as if that doesn't sound (laughs) strange enough. The city ran out of money before sidewalks could be completed. So in a lot of areas, you ended up with this bizarre situation where you had a road with two deep channels running on either side. So if you wanted to cross the street... You might just imagine yourself walking out of a building. You're immediately face-to-face with a retaining wall. And then you'd turn, walk in this little channel between the building and the retaining wall. Until you got to a ladder, you would climb the ladder, according to Ken Van Vechten in the L.A. Times, somewhere as high as 35 feet tall. I mean, don't buy too many supplies while you're out shopping. And then when you finally got to the top of the ladder, you could cross the street, do it all again. Sounds like a chore.
4: Yeah, but I bet you'd stay in pretty good shape if you had (laughs) to do this.
3: Some vertical exercise from time to time.
4: It took an entertainment tax on Vice to raise enough money for sidewalks, though these weren't just backfilled like the streets. Instead, arches were built between the buildings and the retaining walls with sidewalk roofs built on top. So for years, people continued to use the underground storefronts and sidewalks until disease finally made it unsafe.
3: And I think that is... Even stranger than the previous scenario I was describing, that you would just have a two-level sidewalk, essentially, and two levels of storefront.
4: Yeah, it sounds more complicated to me.
3: It does, <laughs> yes. You'd be, I can imagine getting directions for a store, and you're out on the street looking for it, and then you're like, oh man, <laughs> it must be in the lower level. Um, okay, so Seattle, Washington, certainly a strange entry on our list. And obviously, um, the, the city's underground was the accidental result of handling a problem. Certainly not anything the engineers set out to do. But the next entry on our list was an underground city that was very much intentional.
4: Yeah, actually, out of all the entries on this list, it might be the most legitimate underground city. So it's Derinkuyu, and it's in Turkey's historical Cappadocia region. Cappadocia has this really unusual terrain. Ancient volcanoes plus erosion has created strange conical mountains, sometimes called fairy chimneys. And because, like Petra, this region was once a trading hotspot, and because the rock is soft, it also has a lot of caves and underground areas which are perfect for avoiding looters and raiders if you are looking to do that sort of thing. Some ancient
3: merchant, perhaps.
4: So according to Travel Weekly, there are more than 40 underground cities in the region, with Darren Cuyu being the largest. It was discovered in 1963 when a home renovation uncovered a hidden passage and it led to a 13-story deep city with a room for up to 20,000 people. Well, with a series of rooms,
3: I mean, just endless chambers and chambers and tunnels and passageways, and and really not just living areas either. There were stables for livestock, wine presses, storerooms, I mean, literally, an underground city. Numerous ventilation shafts to keep the city safe and, and keep the air healthy. And kind of ominously, <laughs> uh, these 1,000 pound stone doors Uh, they look like they'd be out of a cartoon or something I mean giant stone wheels that apparently one person could move by himself uh, although they could only be moved from the inside only so trying to keep somebody out of the underground city Uh, most historians believe that this uh, Derinkuyu was built by Phrygians in about 800 BC others think it's older than that. In fact, much older and was built by Zoroastrians in this sort of Noah-esque type undertaking to uh, protect the Chosen during a great disaster. And I checked out a History Channel segment on it and was even treated to some pretty fun theories. I mean, you got to have amazing theories like this if you're going to be talking about underground cities, right? Uh, involving extraterrestrials, both as engineers planning the place and invaders who necessitated it being built in the first place.
4: This reminds <laughs> me of that South Park episode where they watch the History Channel to find <laughs> out about the first Thanksgiving, and it's all about extraterrestrials, but...
1: Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest.
2: Where are you taking me?
1: Are you, Death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket?
4: Just an aside, It's uh,
3: regardless of who built it, it's a pretty impressive uh, thing, and I definitely encourage you guys to look up a map of it that sort of helps provide the scale we're talking about. I mean, if 20,000 people doesn't already do the trick.
4: So the next city on our list is kind of the quintessential underground city, not only for its expansiveness, but for its still unrevealed mysteries. It's Paris, which is filled with subways, sewers, quarries, reservoirs, crypts, and wine cellars. And once you look at a map of underground Paris, it's actually kind of amazing that the city doesn't just collapse, something that is actually sometimes kind of a problem. It is. This disturbed
3: me <laughs> after I learned about that. But um, Paris's buildings, many of which are, of course, built of limestone, give a little bit of a clue about what's actually underneath Paris or what used to be underneath Paris. Uh, more limestone, of course, plus gypsum. And a long time ago, the quarries were built far outside of the city, so it wasn't like There was a danger of massive stone buildings falling into empty quarries. Um, But eventually development caught up and new buildings would be placed over mines and quarries that had just been abandoned or filled with rubble. And nobody had a really good sense of where all this stuff was under the city and what was being built over it and how stable everything was. And after the city's first major collapse in 1774, it was followed quickly by a few other collapses. And Louis XVI brought in an architect named Charles Axel Guillemot to map the quarries, try to figure out where everything was underground. And come up with a plan to stabilize the city. Conveniently, though, this was around the same time Louis was ordering that Paris's overflowing cemeteries be emptied. And I went off on a research tangent on these gross cemeteries too. I mean, yikes! Really, really bad. Charnel houses, just rotten bog grounds of of cemetery. Um, so they had a problem. All these all these bodies to deal with, what to do with with all the bones. You know, people couldn't live in these areas anymore near the cemetery. So the solution was to put them in some of the old tunnels. So that's how the Paris Catacombs came about. Six million dead are interred within the Paris Catacombs. Um, I mean, probably most folks know this already, but they're, of course, not named in any way. They are not um, grouped even as entire skeletons, just bone piles.
4: Some of them are around 1,200 years old.
3: Yes. Pretty amazing fact. Um, I do think it's noted what cemetery they came from, though. So that's one little nod to to their original burial spot.
4: So that was the most famous result, probably, of Guillemot's work. But they also made a lot of progress as far as engineering and mapping the tunnels goes. And the department set up to examine the tunnels still exists today. And just a side note here, which might be a scary thought for a lot of people, there are still cave-ins, though there hasn't really been a big one since 1961. The maps drawn by Guillemot also serve as the basis for underground exploration today by people who are known as cataphiles, according to Neil Shea in National Geographic. Some of these cataphiles are casual explorers who enter sewers or old utility tunnels to paint or even just to hang out. Others are actually trained explorers who go as far as underground diving to examine unknown parts of the map.
3: Which sounds... So terrifying. I mean, you're already underground. It's dark. They're rats. They're roaches. And then you dive into a pit of black water. No, thanks. Yeah,
4: <laughs> I'll skip it. So to combat the cataphiles, Paris has a special police unit, which we mentioned in the intro. We did mention that. And, and it's interesting, too, the...
3: I think it's the habitation of these tunnels which make underground Paris so fascinating, you know, that they're not just completely abandoned. Um, One of the most interesting points to me was that uh, during the war, of course, some of these old quarries were used by resistance fighters. Some were used as Nazi bunkers. um, But just normal sort of pursuits too. I mean not hunkering down. Uh, for example, farmers would grow mushrooms in them because you know perfect dark, chilly wet environment. good for growing your market mushrooms you know not too close to the, the catacombs I hope I hope <laughs>
4: not. Always watch your vegetables, I guess. I guess so that's the lesson to this story <laughs> Yes, that's the one. So like Paris, New York City is another city that's really famous for its underground, its sewers, its subway, and so on. But for this, we're going to keep it really specific and talk about something called Track 61, which once symbolized the height of luxury in the city. It didn't start that way, though.
3: No, it really didn't. The original Grand Central Depot was, a, as you would imagine, a large train station built all above ground, The station, the tracks, the train yard, the whole deal. But between 1903 and 1913, according to Joseph Brennan and Columbia University, the railway and the terminal moved largely underground, you know, this massive construction project, which, of course, opened up all this valuable real estate at street level. So the Waldorf Astoria Hotel, one of the most famous luxury hotels out there for anybody who's not in the know already, uh, was built on one of these auctioned-off lots between 1929 and 1931. And it was built right above railway sidings underneath. And, and shortly before the hotel's construction, and this is an important note for, for what's actually under the hotel some electrical buildings had stood on the site, and one of them had necessitated an underground loading platform that was located by the siding. So it wasn't a, a train station, so to speak, but there was a platform that existed underneath, underneath the Waldorf Astoria.
4: So eventually the hotel repurposed this old platform for its guests who were lucky enough to have their own private railway cars. You could basically exit your car and be whisked up by elevator to the hotel. FDR notably used the secret entrance for a 1944 campaign stop. And the station is now in disrepair, but it did have one last hurrah when Andy Warhol held his underground party there. Not
3: too many people with private rail cars these days, I guess. Nope. (laughs) So, a special train terminal sounds kind of nice, or a train station, a private train station, your own private car. Um, it really sounds pretty lovely, but the next entry on our list is more on the disturbing dark side of underground life, and it's in Portland, Oregon, of all places, underneath Old Town and Chinatown. You'll find shafts and tiny rooms and tunnels, that all hint at a very dark maritime past that happened in the city. In the 19th century, ship captains would have trouble finding enough crewmen for these multi-year, very difficult voyages. And so unscrupulous Portlanders, or if that's what you call people who live in Portland, (laughs) they would fill the demand for, for these crewmen by opening up pubs, Drugging able-bodied patrons and then dropping them through trapdoors in the floor that were called deadfalls. Uh, after that, you know, after the, these unsuspecting patrons would awake in some creepy underground chamber, uh, they would be eventually taken down to the docks, sold to captains for as much as fifty dollars a head, which was a tidy profit for the bar owners. Um at the time it was called being Shanghai or, or crimping. And that's why still today the tunnels are called Shanghai tunnels. This was one that was a, a listener suggestion actually. I think the the lady had gone on one of these Portland Shanghai Tunnel tours was quite impressed by it.
4: Do you have to go through the trap doors to oh get my into gosh. the tunnels?
3: <laughs> have a little drop. Maybe it'll be like Seattle and you climb down
4: a ladder. <laughs> so for the last spot on this list, we gave it to an underground city that extends layer by layer, deeper and deeper into the past. And that's, of course, Rome. And a visitor to Rome in 1580 described that if a man happened to dig on his property, he might easily uncover a column upright and extending from deep below ground.
1: As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner.
0: Jean! Eugene Fodor. Jean will go.
1: Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with.
0: So you write the books, Jean, and on C business. I understand now. It is a wise man, uh, a wiser woman.
1: But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas.
2: Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth.
1: Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh!
2: Jean, run!
1: So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. But your time won't and we're all too quickly approaching that final destination listen to fodor's guide to espionage on the iheartradio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts i am the ferryman in the shadows of the afterlife the ferryman of souls guides america's most influential spirits to their eternal rest
2: where are you taking me
1: are you death this road is not on any map to on purpose with jay shetty on the iheart radio app apple podcast or wherever you get your podcasts trust me you won't want to miss this one
2: imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions i'm mini driver and this was the idea i set out to explore in my podcast mini questions this year we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom friends courtney cox you can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney.
1: I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still
2: feel guilty. Old rock icon, Liz Fair.
4: That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a... Dead End and
2: many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven Questions, Limitless Answers.
4: In even as far back as the classical period, Roman architects would raise the surface level by just taking the roofs off of old buildings, backfilling them and starting new on top. The Great Fire of AD 64 saw entire neighborhoods buried and natural erosion buried low-lying areas in the Middle Ages.
3: So this is a little different from some of the other underground cities we've discussed in that it wasn't necessarily intentional. I mean, it was intentional, but it's just building on top of trash year after year. And um, churches especially are prime spots to find these layers of history underground according to Tom Mueller in the Atlantic and that's partly because the ancient churches were built on pagan temples, you know, to try to completely erase them but keep people coming back to their familiar worship location. Um, He used the example of San Clemente, which is near the Colosseum, where there is a 12th century church that sits on top of a 4th century church that sits on top of 1st century apartments and a temple, which sits on top of a building that was destroyed in the fire. And then Crazy. There's still something else below that because they can tell the walls keep on extending. It just hasn't been excavated yet. Um, according to Mueller, though, there is a lot that's just under regular buildings too. And I've always read that uh, building projects in Rome are kind of a nightmare because you just <laughs> dig down a little bit and you gotta call the the uh, archaeologists in because you've uncovered some priceless find. But uh, apparently, many apartment dwellers are aware, you know, especially if they've lived in the place for a long time, their families have lived there, they know of some trapdoor in the apartment basement or, or something like that will that will lead to old graves or um, old villas or whatnot. Pretty interesting stuff.
4: Sounds like we could do an entire episode on haunted Rome or something like that. I think like we that. could
3: definitely do that. And that's one of the reasons why I didn't put London on the short list too, because another city with great underground culture. Um, Rome I got to experience a little bit of underground Rome when I visited. After college, I went to the Capuchin Monastery, which mm-hmm. has uh, all of the... I've probably mentioned this on the podcast before. The catacombs? It has the bones arranged into these terrifying, uh, I guess,
4: Baroque sort of designs. I mean, it's very beautiful on the one hand, but a little bit disturbing, too. A little bit scary, but I think that just... I mean, you mentioned London, and it just shows how much potential, I guess, there is to talk about some more of these underground cities and areas of cities. Certainly. Plus, for London,
3: we could talk about the Great Stink, which is another favorite listener suggestion.
4: And interestingly, there are some possibilities for underground cities or areas of cities in the future. Yeah, and not just hiding away all of our
3: ugly stuff like like sewers and all that. Um, One example I read about in Smithsonian was something called the Earth Scraper, which is a 65-story underground pyramid planned for Mexico City. And it sounds pretty elaborate. According to the architect Esteban Suarez, the plaza above would be glassed over. And so you would have this natural light flooding into what I presume would be an, a reverse atrium almost inside. Uh, and then every 10 floors, you would have what he called an earth lobby. So green space, <laughs> so you wouldn't feel too horrible working in the depths of the, the earth all day. And then other cities already have real underground situations already in action.
4: Yeah, Helsinki is an example of a city that already has an underground hockey rink, a church, a mall, a water treatment plant, but they also have an underground data center, which is kind of interesting. Uh, Usually these are really hot and require a lot of energy to keep them cool. But this center is kept cool by using seawater, which in turn is then used to warm homes that are above ground. And this model is being explored by several large Asian cities who are hoping to push some of, I guess, they're less attractive or, or kind of things you don't want above right. ground. Things you, you don't <laughs> really want to look at. Sewage treatment
3: plants, that sort of thing, or, um, or even data centers like this. So pretty interesting. Underground cities of the future, I mean... Who knows? Maybe we'll,
4: lots of possibilities.
3: (laughs) We'll have some, yeah, some interesting underground things to talk
4: about in a few years. So we have some listener mail here today. I believe we do. It's an email from listener Jason, and he says, I am a huge fan of your show and have recently listened to the podcast about William Randolph Hearst. I'm a history major at Townsend University, and about a year ago, I wrote a research paper on the history of marijuana legislation for a political science class. While researching the beginnings of the marijuana prohibition, I discovered that Hearst was instrumental in the passage of anti-hemp legislation. I became curious about the subject, but did not go into depth with my Hearst research due to the nature of the assignment. I was wondering if you could dedicate a podcast to Hearst and marijuana. And I get this request a lot, don't we, Sarah? We do, because people listen to the Hearst episode
3: and then they think, hmm. I actually wrote a blog post on it for the science blog a few years ago now, trying to do multi-purpose sort of stuff there with history and right. science. Um, but it, it is a really fascinating story and it could make a great podcast, too. It was just fun for me at the time to be able to find a picture of, of her you know, doing a podcast on him and then writing a blog, but um, a very interesting story, so thank you for the suggestion.
4: And you can still check out that blog post on our site, perhaps? Yeah,
3: you might be able to find that if you type in some combination of and
4: <laughs> dig around our blog. Yeah, dig around in the blogs,
3: just like it's an underground city. Uh, if you want to send us any other suggestions, you can email us at historypodcast at discovery dot com. We're also on Twitter at missed in history, and we're on Facebook.
4: And if you want to learn a little bit more about urban exploration, which we talked about in the intro to this podcast, it's really kind of fascinating topic Uh, you can read a little bit more about that by looking up our story 10 cities for urban exploration and you can look that up by visiting our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com for more on this and thousands of
2: other topics visit howstuffworks.com